Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I couldn't be better. We have an old friend back on who's joining us with a new friend talking about a new, extremely mysterious case that takes place across the ocean. Before we get to that, how are you? <laughs> Thank you for asking. I am doing great. Yes, it was great to reconnect with Ken Davies of the Fred the Head podcast, The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head. He is back with his old friend, Ian, and they have launched a new podcast called The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland. And the Gentleman of Heligoland is the nickname of an unidentified body who was found off the waters of Heligoland, which is a tiny little island, and he was found in 1994. And I believe they are up to eight episodes, and you can find that podcast wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland, that is H-E-L-I-G-O-L-A-N-D, and follow them as they continue their journey to discover who this man is and how did he turn up in the area of the North Sea near that little German island of Heligoland. Yeah, it's really interesting. They've dove deep and there's sort no of renewed interest in the uh, in the case online. So if you Google it, you'll find a lot of uh, recent news articles. Most of them come out of the UK. So some of those will be linked in the show notes. Hey, Tim, I'm just curious what you're up to every other weekend in August this year. Well, Lance, uh, it, it almost feels like you were setting me up for something by the way you asked that question. Not at all. We are going on tour with Patrick Hines of True Crime Obsessed and Maggie Freeling. We are hitting up six different cities in August 2022. Tim, you nailed it. We are headed out to the fine city of Orlando, Florida on Wednesday, August 3rd. Then you can catch us in West Palm Beach, Florida on Thursday, August 4th. We're going to take a break before we head out to to Atlanta for Saturday, August 6th. And then, Lance, a couple weeks after that, we're going to St. Paul, Minnesota, and then Dallas, Texas on Saturday, August 20th, and then Houston, Texas on Sunday, August 21st. It is going to be an absolute blast. So go to truecrimeobsessed.com slash c-us-live, or you can just go to truecrimeobsessed.com and click on the link that says see us live. There you go. All right, we're going to break for a commercial here, and we'll be right back with Ken and Ian to discuss the mysterious case of the gentleman of Heligoland. Welcome back to the podcast, Ken Davies, and welcome to the podcast, Ian McKay. How are you two gentlemen doing tonight? Very, very good. Thanks for getting us back on again. It was uh, it's a great experience talking about Fred the Head last time we were on. That was a uh, fantastic uh, effect on listeners to Fred the Head. So we're very grateful for that. And yeah, Ian's joined me in terms of looking at this new case and he'll be joining me subsequently on Fred the Head. So it's great to get Ian involved as well. And it's nice to be here as well, Tim and Lance. Thank you very much for the invite. Looking forward to it. I've deliberately not done a lot of research, so I don't know where it's going, but apparently you spend hours talking about American football. So if I'm just quiet in the top <laughs> right-hand corner, you'll know what's going on. My uh, pressing question for you, Ian, is uh, how much turmoil did you have to go through during your pizza incident that happened earlier on tonight? <laughs> I'm surprised you're even here, coherently speaking. Lance, if the truth be known, the worst of the turmoil has yet to be faced because I had, I had my pizza delivered to the wrong address and when it's finally turned up an hour later, it's bang on when we're starting to do our podcast. So I now have to smell it for an hour or however long and then eat it when it's cold. It's terrible. Whew. 
but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just struggle through. Don't worry. If you have to leave, we'll understand. If it gets too much, you'll just see a great big triangle getting shoved into my face. So don't worry. But I, I will be polite and leave it there. Thank you for joining us, the both of you, because you're way, way across the ocean. You're several hours ahead of us. So this is, I believe, 9 p.m.? Not 9 p.m. in England, yeah. 9 p.m. So really, it's uh, very much appreciated that you joined us to talk about this new case. Real quick, where's Fred the Head at? Because I think everyone who listened to that episode really loved that content. Where are we at with it now? Very kind of you to say that. Well, Fred the Head is about to reappear. We kind of pulled that to a natural conclusion after 30 episodes. So we'd kind of reached a situation similar to the way you guys run things, that we developed a, what we felt was a hypothesis that hung together and took all the things we knew about that case and the facts and some of the extrapolations that we've made, but kind of brought it into something that we felt looked like the most likely probable scenario. Now, having reached that situation, we wanted at that point just to take a step back, take a breather, start to do some other investigations into Fred that we could then come back with in a few months time and start season two. So that's kind of where we left things after 30 episodes. And that felt like the first book of a trilogy. And it feels now like we're about to start the second book of that trilogy. And that starts again in July. Well, certainly Fred's my first love in the sense of he's the guy that got us into this. So we feel a moral obligation to see that through to the bitter end. And so we're back for the second part of that trilogy in July. But in the meantime, we'd seen these ideas of new cases kind of emerged and one emerged so strongly that we thought we need to have a look at this. And the original plan was to look at it for a couple of episodes and just see if there was anything that we could bring to it, anything new we could discover, where we could bring our approach to this, which was deep investigation, talking to people that never been spoken to before, and just seeing if we could cast a fresh light on something that had gone really cold. And that's what The Gentleman of Heligoland has ended up being all about. Ian, let's hear about how you got involved, and then I want to hear about the case. I got involved because I have been best buddies with Ken since we did our first day at university together, aged 18, a year or two ago, obviously. I'm a massive crime fan. When my first books, aged eight, were Agatha Christie. So when I heard that Ken was doing his Fred the Head investigation, I caught up very quickly with the first binge listen to the first seven or eight episodes. And then I've been an avid fan ever since following that going on. Uh, and of course, because it's so interactive for all the listeners to the to the podcast. There's, there's a, a Facebook page that you can join in on. The messenger button is there for us to, to receive. And or when I was a Fred the Head fan, to send messages to Ken, asking questions with my points, etc. On it's like an immersive experience, even as a listener, to get involved as much as you want to. Uh, and we'll talk about some of the um, some of the breakthroughs that we've made on this illegal land case purely because some of the listeners have been able to get to places where we can't. So I was a fan of talking more and more to Ken on a more regular basis. Fred the Head was coming to a, a natural hiatus, and I think Ken just wanted a bit of moral support in getting stuck into another potential Fred the Head and asked me if I would like to, to join him. And of course, I didn't even take a moment to think about it and said, yes, I want to get involved. So it was a, I, was an, I was a pushover. I was an easy sell, a cheap <laughs> date, whatever you want to call me. I just said yes straight away. Well, that's good to hear. And uh, what do you bring to the table as far as the investigation goes? Yeah, what do you bring to the team, Ian? <laughs> 
I have a different thinking to the way that Ken works. Ken is very thorough and methodical. And if there's some science, he'll research the science research the science and then he research it and then I'll get a third opinion and he's following each individual fact whereas I think that um, Ken wanted brought onto the team was somebody who would take that yes but would project it forward and try and theorize a little bit and challenge some of it maybe because thinking of things in a, in a different way so it's the hive mind that helps us move things forward I think because we've got effective on everything that that comes out um, and, and that was evident really quite quickly wasn't it when we when we started the case there were three reasons really i wanted i wanted Ian involved and firstly i wanted the gentleman to have a different flavor and a different character a different dynamic than fred had had i mean fred essentially was a monologue it was me talking to loads of people around the world but essentially driven by me and whilst that's great and, and people like that i wanted the new one to have a distinct identity because i just didn't want it to be fred mark ii so i thought it was important to get another voice at least another voice in fact, there's three voices really in, in The Gentleman that would give that different dynamic and different input to it. So that was very important. Second thing was, was workload. You know, at the end of the day, I knew that we were taking on another massive undertaking and it was really important to have more people to carry that load. And particularly people, as Ian mentioned, who perhaps come from a different perspective. I mean, I've known Ian literally from, you know, the first day of university. So I know his brain, his brain chemistry is different to my brain chemistry. And therefore, I think that's additive. I mean, sometimes that can be subtractive, but this, this is additive. So we've worked together, we've played in bands together, we've been created together, we've known each other very well for a long, long time. And, and I think when you get that kind of relationship with someone, you know what you're bringing into it scenario and I think it's got a different identity and I think people like the fact that it's it's got a little it's a little lighter maybe you know we have we have a few chuckles along the way in, in the investigation whereas Fred hasn't got a lot of levity to it you know that's pretty deep uh, whereas this one feels a little bit a little bit more uh not only casual but it feels a little bit more like lighter and I think that's a good thing I think there's room for that well, we can't help it, can you? We can't help put that in when we're talking. No, no, no. no. We've known it It's not a script that you're reading really professionally on your own. It's, it's a, a lot of the episode is an interchange. It's, an, it's not quite an argument, but it's a discussion and see where we, we don't really know where we're going to end up at the end of it until we've had that discussion. We do not know at the end of one episode what's going to be in the next episode we've got an idea we've got the themes we know the kind of thing we're moving for but we have no idea what it's looking like we've got hopes we've got hopes and, and it's rarely anywhere close in the end to what we thought we were going to get two weeks before that puts a lot of pressure having to deliver these new found things every two weeks a lot of pressure but it's also i think a fantastic driver motivator to actually make something happen and and God, we've been down to the wire a few times, haven't we, mate? Definitely want to get into the mystery itself because it's fascinating and the two of you do great work on it. But I want to just ask one more question about the dynamic between the two of you. If you could put a percentage on storytelling versus investigating the mystery, what would that be as far as between the two of you? I spend more time in the studio. I write a script, kind of, narrate it. So I'm the narrative voice. I suppose I am the primary narrative voice. So I do a lot of that and playing around with the mix and all that kind of stuff. I do all that. Actually, the burden, the primary burden on research and investigation is carried by Ian and somebody called Joe Willis, who is a lady who, who does a lot of research for us. 
they carry, I, I would say they do two thirds of the investigative workload. The hours and hours and hours of research into North Sea currents, for example. But the stuff like finding finding missing people in Canada or finding missing people in America who happen to fit this bill of this person who died. Ian and Joe have done miracles on that through the night, whereas I haven't done that. So we didn't intend that to be the case. I think that's just become it's the natural balance of it. I mean, there is a story to it. Of course there is. Not a story that we're writing. It's, it's a diary of our investigations. All three of us are investigating and... One thing leads on to another, which is also what happens when you're telling a story as well. But I think we're all, primarily we're all investigating and the story is unfolding. Ken's driving the narrative of it because he's got all the kit and the experience. So he's writing the script. Both Joe and I are involved in freeform discussion, if you like, during the recording of the podcast. And we've got an idea of what, what the structure of the podcast is going to be so that we can thrash that out beforehand. If it, I mean, we've never had to draw the line and say, I think you're going down the wrong line here because, because when writing the story, it's unfolding. And sometimes the story is that nothing's being moved forward. And you have, you have to try and get something out of that, uh, which, which we've done so far, I think. You guys want to talk about the story now? Want to talk about this mystery? I'll give you the, the setting and the, the main basic facts. Don't want to give any spoilers. Well, I'll try not to give any spoilers away, but it might be, some of them may be unavoidable. So apologies if, if, I, if, if, if any slip out, but I'll try not to. Essentially, this all goes back to 1994 and this tiny island which very few people know about, which has got a very mysterious history in its own right, a place called Heligoland. Until the First World War, Heligoland was owned by the UK, it was owned by Britain. But Britain wanted part of Tanzania in Africa, and that was owned by the Germans. As these things happened in those days, nobody asked anyone on Heligoland or in Tanzania, but the British and the German politicians got together and said, well, why don't we swap them? You have Heligoland and we'll have Tanz Tanzania. And I said, yeah, okay. They shook on it, had a drink afterwards, and it was settled. So from after the First World War, Heligoland became part of Germany. But it's this tiny island. It's about 50 miles north of the German coast. So it's naturally should be German, but it is this tiny island. Back in 1994, on the 11th of July, 1994, there's a patrol boat from Germany going on through the sea, about 20 miles, 20 kilometers, I should say, away from Heligoland to the west of Heligoland, they see a body in the water. I mean, that's unusual. You don't get many bodies bobbing around in, in the one corner of the North Sea. So they haul it onto the, onto the boat and they take it back to the local town, which is a place called Wilhelmshaven. Now that's in mainland Germany. It's not in Heligoland. This body never went to Heligoland, went back to Wilhelmshaven. As with all these things, they start imagining initially that it's going to be a really relatively straightforward case you know there's, there's a man in the sea gonna have some kind of id gonna be something that is going to be able to identify him and link him to a missing person but it didn't happen and i suppose we wouldn't be sitting here if it had but it, it didn't because there was no identification on this body but there were three things which stood out as massively unusual about this body didn't unfortunately help them solve it but they are actually unusual and may help us solve it. So the first thing is his height. So this guy was 197 centimetres long. When we convert that to imperial measurements, as we call them in the UK, he's six foot six. This is a six foot six man and six foot six men are rare. 
I mean, unless you're on a basketball court, they are rare. Yeah, I was looking at this before today, just to give you a comparison for the US. And essentially, it's 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 one in about 700 people in the US is six foot six. Now, that's today. Back in 1994, we were all a bit smaller then. And this guy was was 45 to 50. So he was born in the war. For someone to be walking around in 1994 at six foot six, really, really unusual. He's massive. He's a giant, but he's not a big man. He's extremely thin, almost undernourished thin. Uh, so very thin, very tall. The other thing is he had very unusual clothes on for someone being fished out the sea in Germany because he had absolutely archetypal English gentleman's clothes. He had a shirt from a well-known English retailer. He had a tie on from a well-known retailer. He had very expensive shoes on. So he had shoes made by a company called Churches in Northamptonshire who make handmade shoes. These are thousand dollar a pair shoes, very expensive shoes. He looked like an archetypal English gentleman. And that's what the Germans coined him. They called him the gentleman of Heligoland because they thought he was a very rich, well-to-do English gentleman who somehow found his way into the North Sea. The third key thing were the injuries. The German police have been a little bit slow, maybe, in just releasing this kind of information, but he had certain injuries. He had a fractured skull and he had fractured ribs. That led the German police to conclude very early in this process, it's a homicide. For reasons that we may talk about, we're not as sure about that as they are, but they're convinced he's a homicide. So we've got a man who is pulled out of the sea on the 11th of July, 1994, extraordinarily tall, dressed like the archetypal Englishman with injuries that may suggest homicide. Now that should, because these are some unusual aspects, have facilitated an identification. They never did facilitate an identification. And that case got colder and colder and colder as these things do. They had mitochondrial DNA at the time. They checked in Germany to see if there were any matches. There were no matches. And the case got colder and colder. And, and only very recently, and I'm talking now in the course of the last five, six months, it started to re-emerge as a case. They've, got, they've exhumed the body now. They've got better quality DNA. That's where we first saw it, because we saw this was being reported. And then at that point, we said, Actually, if this guy is English or has got English connections, we're probably in a good position to try and identify who this person might be. By all indication, this gentleman should have been discovered within hours. If you're going to an establishment to purchase $1,000 shoes, I would imagine that there would be security footage there. I would imagine like the establishment that you're getting them at would remember you. Yeah, you would. It's not quite as advanced as that. I mean, we are talking about handmade shoes which are relatively rare and their systems tend to be slightly more bespoke than major retailers who have got all kinds of technology that that can you know track back expenditure you know to an individual it wasn't quite as advanced as that back in those days that said you're absolutely right those shoes are you are, are very unusual that height is very unusual when you get unusual things crossing like that you would imagine that would really narrow these things down 
And the fact that someone should miss someone who looks like that. Any wallet? No identification on him whatsoever. Fingerprints? To a degree, when someone's been in the sea for a significant amount of time, their body starts to disintegrate. Uh, and there are some fairly gruesome aspects of the way this man disintegrated. Which we've discussed with experts, you know, it's even more gruesome than you can imagine. Yeah, yeah it, it is pretty gruesome. But, but of course, it's just this kind of waxy, I think it's called a, a podicere, something like that. This waxy substance forms on the body if the body's been immersed in water, particularly seawater, for a long period of time. And that does have a tendency to have negative effects on, on some of these types of evidence. Now, that said, the German police that this is may have fragments of uh, fingerprints, but it, it hasn't. He hasn't turned up anyone. But the body was in a pretty pretty skeletal way when they found him. I, I, sorry, can I just say, this is, this is what happens when we're recording. Ken makes a bold statement like that, and he's got absolutely no idea whether it's true or not. I think the guy had no eyes or ears, and the scalp would have been pecked off his skull. But I don't know why the rest of him's got to be skeletal, because we've, we've heard that the body's got this waxy thing over it, and he's, he's reasonably well preserved in the cold seawater that's that's what happens all of the time we get to where we can <laughs> agree with it uh, the fingers are going to be like extremities and we did go into talk to different um experts about what happens we found out that once the guy bobbed up to the surface he'd have lost his eyes in the space of an hour or two from the seabirds and his ears and if his fingers are there as well that's that's the sort of thing that will they'll go first so you know maybe that's why they haven't said that there's any any fingerprints what what is challenging correct me if i'm wrong Ken, about this case is that virtually all of the information that we started with in the german police making their appeal to restart the case in february virtually every one of their assumptions that we've challenged we've disagreed with in the end when they've reactivated their appeal or updated their appeal it's all sorts of changes to their original presumptions which by and large reflect the seven or eight episodes that we had done up until the point that they reissued their appeal. If I can give one example, on that original appeal, they suggested that the gentleman would have been thrown off. He's jumped off Heligoland, or he's gone out from a boat from Heligoland and been dropped in the sea. Now, we didn't like that, and I already talked to you about the work that we've done on currents. From the work that we've done, we think it's far more likely that the guy who ended up in that place particularly if he's been in the water for two or three months, could have drifted from hundreds of kilometres away, virtually all the way down the east coast onto Sussex and the Isle of Wight and through the English Channel. That's where this guy came from. After 30 years on their appeal in February, they're saying this fella's probably been chucked off a boat that's come from Heligoland or just thrown off a cliff from Heligoland. By the end of April, the investigator is... Um, is saying, oh, you know, he could have, he could have drifted from miles away, though he could have drifted from miles away. Yeah, it, there's no doubt. I think that some of their views on what happened to this man has been coloured by what they've heard on the podcast, which is kind of nice in a way. When the the German police first put their appeal out on this, they they were absolutely certain this guy wore shoes of size eleven. We thought that's a bit odd, so we got a picture of the shoes. And I'd worked in the shoe industry, bizarrely, years ago. So I knew some experts in shoes. They said, have a look at this picture for me. Tell me what size those shoes are. They all came back with bigger size shoes. They're all, we, we know now for certain those shoes are not 11s. Now, they're only 12 and a half. It doesn't sound a big thing, but it actually is a big thing. You know, at the end of the day, when you're trying to solve a murder, you've got to get every little piece right to give yourself any chance. You can't 
get things wrong because you can't be bothered to go and find out the truth. And there are a number of those things where we went through piece by piece what the German police had put out there and said, that's not right, and that's not right, and that's not right. And there's no doubt the more recent police reports on this seem to be reflecting some of those things that, that we pointed out during the podcast. We also spoke to one or two people who had who were quite close and had more information than was in the public. I think when we mentioned one or two things that shouldn't be out there, details about what the body was weighed down with, because they'd never told anybody the body had been weighed down. This might have been weighed down. They certainly hadn't given any indication of what he was weighed down with, but we found out. Take us through what weighed him down and uh, and anything else we know about him. The body had weights attached to it. And this is one of our major points of disagreement with the police. Police believe it's homicide. We don't. One of the major reasons for that is the weight. So the body's weighed down. When a body is weighed down, it's a fairly safe assumption to say, well, if that's the case, you know, someone's trying to get rid of the body, therefore it's likely to be homicide. Now, the problem is with that is that the weights that we used which the police had told no one about because they believed only the killer knew this. In fact, I had a conversation with the German police and they said, you can't say that. It's only known to the killer. And I said, well, I'm, I know it and I'm not the killer. And I know at least five other people who know it and I know they're not the killer. So if you're relying on this in court one day in 12 years time, that you must be the killer because you know what he was weighed down with, you're going to get very, very embarrassed because it's not as secret as you think. We'd found out weeks before what he was weighed down with. And he was weighed down with shoe lasts. Now, a shoe last is a thing that goes inside a shoe for the repair or the manufacture of shoes. You you probably call it similarly in the US. If it, it, they're normally metal weights that are, that are used to f- form inside a shoe to allow a heel to be put on a shoe or a new sole to be put on a shoe. And particularly for shoes like he was wearing, for example, they would be repaired many times. When they were repaired or when they were first made, lasts would be used inside the shoes. And lasts, though they're not associated with the shoes he was wearing, lasts were used as the weights. The problem with that is that only two lasts were used. They were tied to his trousers, one on one side, one on the other. The three kilos in weight, it's enough to pull you under, but it's not enough to leave a body on the seabed to hide a body. As we found out that within a week, 10 days, decomposition of the body would have released enough gas to make the body float and be buoyant enough to be able to come up to the surface with six kilograms of shoe last hanging off the body's trousers. If I was to kill someone and try and dispose of a body, the reason I'd do that is to try to put as much time and space between me and the discovery of the body. I would want to make sure that that body, if it was going to be deposited in a way that was never never going to be found at sea, wasn't going to bob to the surface next Tuesday. It might bob to the surface 10 years on Tuesday, but not, not next week. And therefore, I wouldn't therefore use weights which are the size of an average domestic cat. So we started to challenge some of those ideas. They were, okay, if I was a killer and I had the choice of the whole world of heavy things to attach to this body, I wouldn't skimp on that. And therefore, we started to think, well, maybe if you were going to commit suicide and wanted to make sure your opportunities for survival were minimised, you might, and we've seen lots of evidence of this, apply weights to yourself to make sure those options weren't available to you when you were in the act of dying. And we are 
very much of the opinion now that those weights were used in the act of suicide rather than a perpetrator trying to lose the body and so it could never be found again. And you, you raise a great point there. If you're trying to dispose of a body and put as much distance in time between you and that body, what's more accessible to you, a cinder block or these shoe lasts? What does that tell you about the person? Who has access to those? They've got stamp marks on them. They're identifiable. You wouldn't use something which is so rare and so identifiable uh, as a means of disposing of the body. There's no end of heavy things. In my office here, there's probably... 10 heavier things than that. It strikes me that that is a very significant clue that this was not necessarily a homicide. Well, it's just it's just a big rock off the beach in each pocket. Yeah. That's yeah. it. And also the way they were attached to the trousers. Someone painstakingly attached them to a belt loop. And there was never any blood, by the way, on the trousers. So does that suggest the act of someone who's literally just killed this person or someone who was doing that when they were alive. And I suspect it's much more suggestive of someone doing that act when they were alive. Am I correct in the uh, fact that the shoe lasts were female shoe lasts? And can you go into the insignia that was on there? Interesting thing is that they were, they were described by the German police as female shoe lasts. However, because we went back and talked to Tom, our shoe expert at Satraman, and he observed they're a size nine, which would be a size 10 in the US. So they're not lady shoe lasts, unless the lady with enormous feet. These are male shoe lasts that look female because it's a model of a tiny thin foot that's got to be able to go into the hole of the shoe and turn around and have stuff hammered onto it, uh, have the sole hammered onto it, have the heel hammered onto it and come out and have the shape of the shoe over the top of it to shape it before it, it's finished, that sort of thing. So they look dainty because they don't have loads of hairy toes sticking out of the end of them, but they're a size nine. So they're actually, they're, they're shoe lasts that would be used for men's shoes. That's a very good example of the kind of mistake that's throughout this. If they'd asked anyone, any expert on those lasts, they'd say, no, they're, they're male and they're actually used for repair. They, those kind of shoe lasts are not used in the manufacture of shoes, they're used in the repair of shoes. So this is what we would call a, a cobbler. This is the kind of thing they would use for all kinds of different sizes of shoes. It's just a very good example Ian's raised there of, of minor, but in aggregate, significant mistakes. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Why do they call him the gentleman? Well, the reason they call him the gentleman is really because they thought the clothing was indicative of what of their expectation of what an English gentleman would be wearing. The tie, the stripy tie that they were convinced was a club member tie or a regimental tie, because he was wearing a navy tie with a few different coloured stripes on. It could be a regimental tie, but our research in episode one found that that was just wrong. You know, we traced that that was a tie that had been manufactured and sold in Canada, which they had never mentioned. It just shows that their assumption that that tie meant that he must have been English could be challenged straight away. Well, you know what? I, I don't think it's that weird. You know, I think it's reporting um, and it's different agencies. And we, we see that kind of stuff a lot where it's like, you know, some inconsistencies. For example, they thought he was from Heligoland at first. And I, I mean, I think that's a the first thing that you would look at if the body was found uh, closest to there. I agree with you, Tim. And we accepted that because there was no detail um, initially. But actually, this body's picked up 
20 kilometers west of Heligoland. It's obviously not the only place that it could have come from. Logic would dictate that you'd be thinking, well, there could have been any boat in between that 20 kilometers he could have just come off. We didn't know it was found so far off Heligoland until this batch of information came out because they published the coordinates of, they published more information. And I think that, you know, if we've, discredited the little bits and pieces that they put out there to such a degree that they feel they have to reissue it with a different flavor on it and issue some new information and that would be good i don't think that, that a body chucked off a cliff in heligoland necessarily is going to travel 20 kilometers against the natural circulation of the currents in the north sea and then stop and wait to be found uh, in, in reality if it had gone off heligoland it would have headed up north it would have been picked up somewhere off Denmark if they did, if it looked at the currents. This is one of the important things that that we looked at. Obviously, one of the things we when we identified where this man had been found, logic to us says, well, okay, we know he's kind of been in there three months. We know where he's found. What does that mean about where he may have entered the water? It's a very complex science. There are three things going on. You know, you there are there are big tidal movements that are entirely predictable. There are tidal movements on a daily basis, the in and out effect of the moon, that kind of thing. And of course, there's the wind effect, which is significant and equivalent in the North Atlantic to El Nino, where in certain years, that effect is much stronger than other years. 1994 was a very strong year for it. You can map really, I mean, not to a day, but you can get very accurate portrayal of the general dynamics of tidal movements in and around the English Channel and the North Sea. And there's some very clear patterns. And those very clear patterns are, it moves in a counterclockwise, anti-clockwise way. So you get a strong west to east movement of, of water from the Atlantic through the Channel to the North Sea. And you also get a very strong current down north to south, down the side of the UK and then which, which joins this east to west current, and it all swings over to Heligoland. We know if that body, as the police have said, based on decomposition, was in the, in the sea between three and six months, and we know where it is found, well, we know it's a pretty wide range where he came from. He came from the English Channel, or he came from the side of the UK, the eastern side of the UK, and over a period of three to six months, slowly, but inexorably moved over to where he was ultimately found. We did all that work and then found out if he jumped in out off, he would have shot off north. He would never have ended up where he was. And what's your uh, intent producing these episodes and putting them out there? What would be the most satisfying conclusion for the two of you? Well, I, I'm still motivated by finding out who this guy is. I don't know. It's a, it's a gut feeling. I don't think we've exhausted all the possibilities at all, but I think we're looking, as we believe now that we're looking at somebody who's committed suicide, not an accident because there were weights tied to him, who has committed suicide in the first half of 1994, maybe the first four, four and a half months of 1994, anywhere from the fourth road bridge down to the beachy head. And we're zoned in there on a whole load of local newspapers in quite a small window of time where we can find all of the reported sides and we can track whether their bodies were found. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, there will be one that isn't found. We will be able to put a name to and we'll pass that across. And they've got DNA now, full DNA, which they can go back to the relations of the person who's missing. And, you know, we'll find out who this guy is. That's what my motivation is to do. We've got a number of things in our favour. We find someone who's missing in the UK is 646. We've sold it anyway. 
because there ain't going to be another one missing. You six foot six. There just isn't. Always in this, in this, particularly in the gentleman podcast, there's been two strands of work. First one has been analysing the evidence. Does the evidence actually suggest uh, what the uh, the assumptions which are being made by the German police? So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it, and we spent a lot of time on this, and with some extremely interesting results is to look at who's missing in the world who's six foot six and who's gone missing off boats in the North Sea at around that time. And there have been three really interesting outcomes from that aspect of it. We haven't touched on them, but they're really important. I mean, again, not to give too much away. We solved one of Canada's oldest missing persons cases. Well, Ian did through this process. They had a missing six foot six man we found another six foot six man who was missing and those two things fitted together date of birth everything but but also there were two other very interesting cases that came up of missing people one of which was a suicide so this person uh, who went missing all the authorities said it's a suicide and we established it's not it's not him but we think it's a murder so one day we may go back and relook at that because we're not absolutely convinced it's not a suicide and there's another one that we've just been looking at recently we got very excited about we really thought we found him and we're just going through the process that last one the guy was he was the right age the little newspaper report we had of a, of a fella disappearing off a cross channel ferry it was in exactly the right place at exactly the right time and he was exactly the right age and we could not find his name anywhere and we moved on to not to other specific cases but we've explored other sort of more general aspects of of the case whilst we've tried searching for this chap's name through the help of one of our texas listeners who bullied their 80 year old father who lives in kent into getting in his car and driving a couple of hours all the way to ipswich and then sitting in the library and going through the newspapers of the day at the relevant time he tracked down the newspaper report that followed up the report that there was a person missing by saying that search had been called off. They weren't looking for him anymore. So we found the guy's name. We'd spent a month or something trying to track this fellow's name down. And within having the name within about an hour and a half, we'd been able to rule him out completely. Not, not just because Ken talked to somebody who knew him and found out he was only five foot ten, but Joe also found this guy has a grave and was buried there. So they did recover the body and then it was buried. So he was completely not the right person, although we were excited for about six weeks that we found him. And there'll be somebody else. In a week's time, there'll be there'll be a new one we get excited about. Uh, and we have to rule out. And that's the that's the there's a very interesting part of the process where we find people and we find out about them and then we try and establish whether they're the person. So it's very much two sides of that coin, this this investigation, very much about the evidence, but also very much about who's missing and how do they fit to the evidence. And I think I think that that dynamic works rather well in, in, in this podcast. So what's the story with the autopsy, with the gentleman's autopsy? Well, that's currently happening in the sense of he's been exhumed. I think he was exhumed purely to get a better quality DNA sample. That's being passed around all the authorities around the world, Interpol, those types of things, just to see if there's a match. Problem is, most missing people aren't on any record anywhere. We've obviously been through Interpol's yellow notices, which are all the missing people in the world, and there's no one that meets meets this this criterion. I'd be surprised if they find they find the answer to this in known missing people. This the answer to this will be in unknown missing people, 
And we're in the game of trying to find unknown missing people. And that kind of leads me to my next question about what you as producers of the show instruct or encourage any listener who might have information to do. Do they contact you folks or do you first and foremost say German police or the law enforcement of Heligoland? I always encourage them to get in contact with us folks. We can't underestimate this. The power of the network that we've created in terms of the Facebook page, the Facebook page called Who Was the Gentleman of Heligoland. Obviously, we we have used that. So, for example, you know, we have a lot of listeners in Europe. We have a lot of listeners in the States. We say, look, can anybody find out any more information in European newspapers about this case? And they do. And in fact, one of the most important bits of information we found recently was from someone based in Germany who sent over a report that we'd never seen before, which had a lot more information and photographs. So we know that the, the German police do listen to the podcast. They're working on the basis it's a homicide. We're working on the basis it's a suicide. So we're really encouraging people through the growth of the podcast, really, to get involved. If they know anything about it, let us know. And then we can obviously take things forward, including, obviously, making contact with the German police. We do invite our listeners to challenge us on the Facebook page if they don't agree with something. If they've got alternative theories, if they've got any other information, we've got some very good listeners who will put new photographs up or they'll have heard something in there. And as I say, sometimes purely practical terms, we need feet on the ground where we can't get to. And just in the eighth episode we've done so far, we've had volunteers visiting places for us in uh, Brighton along the South Coast. But we've also had inquiries made to the Zeebrugge police in Flemish from one listener. So the Facebook page is not just um, us to go on and be hilarious for 20 minutes, although that does happen every day. It's been a fascinating case. Our problem, my problem, probably now Ian's problem, is we've opened the box now of, of all these amazing stories. And one of the things that we find is that every podcast we do, we end up with about another five sub-stories, which would quite easily be a podcast in its own right. Well, guys, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us here tonight and telling us a little bit about this case. We really appreciate it. And we will send our listeners over to your podcast to check them out. Thank you. And keep up the good work. And definitely let us know of any updates. Very happy that you got through the interview, Ian. We'll let you get to your pizza. (laughs) I'm sure you've been tormented the entire time. 